Good evening. You're listening to the Parliament of Rux podcast, episode four. Angels. Still don't know what I was waiting for, and my time was running wild a million dead end streets. And every time I thought I got it made, it seemed the taste was not so sweet. So I turned myself to face me. I've never caught a glimpse How the others must see the faker I'm much too fast to take that test Ch-ch-ch-changes Turn and face the strange changes Don't wanna be a richer man Welcome back, everyone, to the Carlo Neurox Podcast. I'm your host, Thomas Lanise, and with me, as always, is his beautiful wife, Melanie Lanise. <laughs> so, are you digging the podcast life so far? Uh, it's it's neat. Uh, I, I get to talk to people and uh, tell them that we do a podcast, and they're like instantly riveted. You know? oh, you're like your friends in real life? Yeah, yeah, like my my real friends, not like you know people that I make up in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> I meant your online friends. No, I meant like my my actual face to face friends. Yeah, and what's their reaction? What do they think about the the whole concept of you uh, trying a new venture here? <laughs> well, those of them that know me really well and know that I am a woman of few words are just shocked that I would be doing something like this. And what do they think about the topic? Um, as soon as I you know like drop the podcast bomb, they're like, "Really? What's it about?" And then I tell them. <laughs> And, well, and your friends aren't particularly comic people, though. So, what are they? What's their reaction? <laughs> They're more interested in um, what it's like to do a podcast. Um, my friends are into dance, into yoga, and herbal stuff, and plants. Um, but but yet, as soon as we start talking comic books, they start talking about how their kids might be interested in it. Their kids might be interested. But, you know, hey, they might be. But honestly, this is so history heavy. I, I'm, yeah. I'm hard pressed to imagine that you know a. a a child sitting for you know an hour and a half <laughs> listening to the, the history of the Senate subcommittees in the 1950s. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I I imagine our our listeners are probably you know closer to our age. You know, folks that know a little something about comics. I could see maybe an older kid, you know, like a preteen or a teenager. Yeah. So somebody that is familiar with the modern stuff and is maybe you know looking back towards some of the roots. That'd be cool too. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what. Uh, what about the process? You know, are you finding the uh, the most fun? Uh, I think probably the online stuff because like it's it's neat watching it unfold and like seeing our you know how many downloads we have per episode. Yeah, I know that's, that's totally cool. <laughs> um, yeah, so for the benefit of the folks listening to this, you know, obviously there's a little bit of lag time. Um, you know, when this comes out, we'll probably be working on episode six, so we're probably about two episodes behind. You know, so. Um, so at the time of this recording, we would have just put out episode three yesterday, and we're up to, I think, 75 downloads. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I don't know if that's good or not, you know, but I mean, from, from my perspective, it's good, you know, being a first-time podcaster and, you know, never having done this before, that to me, that's gold. Yeah, I, I think it's great. Yeah, and uh, and we just set up a, a brand new outlet uh, today, you know. Um, for me, you know, probably the weirdest thing about all this is the use of social media in support of a creative project. You know, we'd already talked about setting up the uh, uh, the Facebook group, um, but today we uh, we dipped our toes into into the Twitter world. 
Um, and you immediately had followers. Yeah, we immediately got retweets. <laughs> we immediately got followers. Um, yeah, it's just it, it boggles my mind like how quickly things move out there. Um, so yeah, so if there's any folks whose preferred method of you know following projects you know online is Twitter, um, you can find us there at TPOR Podcast. Uh, that's our that's our handle. Uh, or, you know, whatever it is. I don't even know if they call it a handle. Or you can do what I did and just get on the Twitter and search out Parliament of Rooks and it comes right up. Oh, it does? I didn't yeah. even know that. Yes. It didn't occur to me that you would have put it under TPOR podcast for some reason. I just went under the podcast name. Well, I mean, that's unified branding. You know, basically our uh, our website is tporpodcast.com. So I figured, you know, and our email address is tporpodcast at gmail.com. So I thought to keep it, you know, unique, our Twitter handle should be tporpodcast. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, and it makes sense when you say it. It just didn't, you know, I'm blonde. I didn't figure it out. <laughs> so. <laughs> so, so cool. Um, so, yeah, so as we mentioned last episode, tonight we're going to continue on, um, you know, with the uh, the tale of Mark Merlin. Uh, when last we had left our intrepid hero, we had delved into uh, you know, his origins a little bit. We're going to continue on uh, with a couple stories that, as I remarked before, um, re- represent a bit of a change in direction for the character. Um, How so? With regard to its overall themes. Um, around this time, as we would know from our first couple episodes, um, there had been a real narrative shift in what was popular in comics. Um, and the era that we were looking at, right as we were trailing off from last episode's story... Um, superhero comics at that time were all the rage. Those JLA tales that we took a look at, for instance, in the first couple episodes, really represented a sort of bellwether for what was going on at the time, you know, with regard to the advent of the, the Silver Age of superheroes. And we had seen there a lot of characters who had recently been reintroduced after a period of, uh, of non-publication. The Flash, the Green Lantern, we had talked about how they were Silver Age reinventions of Golden Age characters. Um, there was actually a handful of others. Um, the Atom we'd seen referenced in a, a letter column. He, too, was a, a Silver Age version of a character that had been published back in the 40s. Uh, there was also a guy, Hawkman, um, that they introduced during that same period, once again, with a namesake in the 1940s. Um, so as these superhero comics really began selling and sort of dominating the market, a lot of the trappings of those stories, you know, origin stories and, and superpowers and, and, you know, costuming, so on and so forth, a lot of those things began being introduced into series, you know, that up until that time had been a little more standard. Mark Merlin, for instance, uh, who we'd covered last episode, you know, albeit a supernatural detective, was still at his core uh, basically a plainclothes fellow. You know, he dressed in a suit, you know, you know, had a secretary and was basically, you know, involved in street level type stuff. All that's going to change a bit slowly at first uh, with the issue we cover tonight, uh, House of Secrets number 60 from May of 1963. Uh, beginning with that issue, we're going to see, you know, the quote-unquote superheroing of Mark Merlin. Um, you know, as we go through these stories, you know, first we're going to see Mark Merlin get a form of superpower, and then a little bit later we're going to see him get a, a recurrent villain, all of which, as I say, are standard tropes, you know, with regard to, to superheroes. Um, so, as I say, um, let's dive right into it tonight. Um, the first story that we're going to be covering is a story called Captive of the Cat Curse, uh, script by Arnold Drake. Pencils uh, by our, our fave Mort Meskin, with inks by George Rousseau. Colors and letters unknown. Um, so it's first things first. Let's uh, take a look at the cover. By the same art team, Mort Meskin, uh, with inks by George Rousseau. So here we have the cover to House of Secrets number 60. And, uh, and our scene is basically a sort of underground catacomb, I'm imagining. There is a, 
an altar in the center of the room where Mark Merlin lies unconscious. Miss Elsa is off to the left, you know, weeping, weeping of course. As, as women of the day would do. Yeah. And, and we see a threatening figure sort of dressed in uh, almost an Aztec-y type costume, drawing a sword over Mark, saying, I do not have to kill Merlin, he's already dead. And watching this whole scene is a very creepy-looking cat creature up on a ledge who... You know, I don't think that the cat is supposed to be creepy-looking. That looks like, to me, it looks like a cat called a, a sphinx cat. A sphinx cat. Yeah, they're, they're hairless, and so you can really see the musculature. So it makes the cat look really angular. But I, I see what you're talking about, like with um, the teeth and the open mouth. Yeah, I was going to say, the sphinx cats have like ridiculously oversized fangs? <laughs> they're, they're more pronounced. Yeah. Like, there's nothing, like... It's an acquired taste. (laughs) So this possible Sphinx cat is thinking, I'm not dead. My life force is in this cat. But if I reveal it, he'll destroy my body. So we can assume that is the the brain of Mark Merlin. As we go down to the, uh, the title box saying, Mark Merlin's most bizarre case, captive of the cat curse. So we open the cover to the first page, uh, which is a full page splash. uh, Mark Merlin's sleuth of the supernatural. And we begin with a narrative caption box. As we see the little head of Mark Merlin. It would be several minutes before I would learn of the mammoth menace that even now stalked the city. Then the hunt would be on. Not alone for the giant cat, but for a supernatural spell that was 4,000 years old. And, by a twist of fate, I, the hunter, would become captive of the cat curse. And we see a gigantic cat uh, roaming the streets as people are fleeing. The black monster, run! It's the curse of the cat pharaoh. It seeks vengeance because the pharaoh's tomb was disturbed. Well, that is a well-informed crowd person. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> so we turn the page and, oh, actually, so that is not a uh, symbolic representation. That uh, that spl- splash panel appears to be, uh, you know, right in the midst of the story because we continue right on from there as the cat ducks into an alleyway and uh, as the cops chase it saying, there it goes, Morgan. After it. Good grief. Did you hear that? As the cat lets out a, a horrendous, ah. Okay, so just as a side note, Sphinx cats sound just like regular cats. They don't, they don't, they don't, <laughs> they don't say, don't do ah. That. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, the cat disappeared, but how could it without leaving a single sign? It left one, says the second cop uh, over a uh, sort of unconscious man. We better get this injured man to a hospital. Meanwhile, at the terminal nearby, I was meeting my secretary, Elsa. Mark! I had a glorious vacation, but a month away from you was much too long. She embraces Mark. <laughs> This way, men, say the cops. A shortcut through the terminal. We've got to find that beast before it strikes again. As the police dashed by, I slowed my friend, Lieutenant Heft, for a quick question. So there's one weird explanation for it, Mark. The curse of the cat pharaoh. Think that over. Mark, what's this all about? Says Elsa. Let's grab a cab and I'll tell you. As uh, Mark and Elsa climb into the cab. It started just after you left. The premier of Sarubia sent the famous tomb of Pharaoh Memkata on a U.S. goodwill tour. I was on the reception committee. As we see a flashback uh, with Mark greeting the uh, the premier. May this gesture by my people help to seal our mutual friendship, Mayor Gilbert. Thank you, Ambassador Fazir. Allow me to introduce Mark Merlin, an authority on your nation's history and culture. Your name is not unknown to me, Mr. Merlin. I'm proud to meet a man with your... Stop! Says a strange turbaned figure suddenly rushing up. Do not unload the tomb of Memkata or his curse will be upon you. Alert police grab the turbaned man. Sorry, Mr. Ambassador. A night in jail will cool him off. Let him be, says the ambassador. I recognize Gamil Saik as an exchange student from my country. 
He means no harm, but his superstition clouds his young vision. Some days later, at the auditorium, where the tomb is being restored, we see a crane uh, sort of lowering a, a oversized cat head onto, you know, a, a semi-Egyptian-looking tomb. Since you're a man of logic, Mr. Fazir, asked Mark, how would you explain the legend of Memkata? That the pharaoh could transform himself into a cat? Well, as you know, 4,000 years ago, my people worshipped the cat figure, so Memkata probably wore cat trappings to increase his subjects' respect for him. Over the years, exaggerated tales came down to us, and look out! As the chain holding the oversized cat head snaps, crashing to the ground, nearly squashing both Mark Merlin and uh, Ambassador Fazir. We turn the page as museum security runs up. I saw the man responsible, but he got away. It was that Saik. Poor fellow, says Fazir. He will go to any lengths to frighten us into returning the tomb. Finally, Mark's recollection continues, an invited audience viewed the first public showing as the guests entered a huge vault inside the tomb. And we see Fazir giving the, uh, the intro tour. This is a painting of Clotoma, Memkata's queen. Seated next to her, according to the legend, is the pharaoh himself, in the form of a black cat. She was a beautiful woman, says Mark. Oddly, she resembles Elsa. He's got Elsa on the brain. Uh-huh, he does. Beware, says the painting of Clotoma. You have dared defile the tomb of the pharaoh. His curse be upon you and all those of the city. As the crowd just breaks out into panic. The painting, it spoke. Let me out of here. In seconds, the chamber was empty, except for the two of us. I will not let myself believe that this thing of ancient stones and paint truly spoke says Fazir. It must be some trick. Quite likely, says Mark. But what was that warning about the people of this city? As the uh, flashback ends and we rejoin Mark and Elsa in the back of the cab. Now this giant cat stalks the city? Mark, this might just be a stunt. I hope you're right. But this morning, I found a previously untranslated parchment in my library. That has me worried. It says Memkata actually did change himself into a cat using a device which is hidden in the tomb. If someone stole that magic, we've really got trouble. Let's go inside. All right, well, I'm with Elsa because I think it's just a stunt, but Mark's apparently really good at his job if he was able to translate a document that hadn't been translated before. Well, okay, so yeah, previously untranslated parchment in his library, no less. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So we uh, we have Mark and Elsa entering the, the exhibit, apparently after hours because Elsa's firing up a flashlight. Do you think that fanatic Gamil Saik used the charm to change himself into that giant cat? What's that? As a black cat jumps out. A cat, just a black alley cat. <laughs> Don't be so jumpy, or I won't let you into the tomb. <laughs> S- settle down, Elsa. <laughs> <laughs> the pharaoh's charm is supposed to be hidden in a hollow stone in one wall. We'll have to tap every stone. You start with that room, I'll take this one. Holy crap, that's going to take forever. Slowly, patiently, I began my search. An hour went by. Two, three, and then the sound I sought. Eureka! I found it! As we see Mark tapping every stone. So he pries it loose, and as it crashes to the floor, it split, and there was something hidden inside. And you see him cradling a tiny little jewel-eyed cat head. So, so what he does is he turns his flashlight on it, but as he does so, ah, that light reflecting from the cat's eyes! It exploded in a weird, blinding light. An artificial night enveloped me, and I felt myself tumbling through space. As we see Mark Merlin's psychedelic sleuth. That's, that's very early 60s. Yeah, he's in the star field, little, like, you know, flashes all around him. Um, so as his vision begins to clear, what's happened? We see thoughts coming from a cat. That body down there, it's, it's me. But that's impossible. How can I be looking down at my own body? 
as he's looking at Mark on, a, on, the, on the altar we saw from the cover. I lifted my hand as a sickening sensation swept through me. Great ghosts, it's changed into a paw. My body's still unchanged, but my life force has entered the body of that cat we saw. It must have followed me in here. How freaky is that? Could you imagine trying to look down at your hands and all you see is like something that can't possibly be yours? I'm just wondering like how he sees through those eyes. Don't cats have like really strange vision? Like, you know, they're colorblind. Oh, no. <laughs> so, anyway, he continues thinking, what does this mean? Is my human body dead? One bound brought me down onto oh. the body that I'd be in. <laughs> One bound brought me down onto the body that had been mine. And it's a, dum, dum, dum. Yeah, a little Mark cat jumps on <laughs> and starts <laughs> pounding his own, his own chest. It's in a state of trance. There's a faint heartbeat. Terribly slow, but it's alive, which means I can reverse this fantastic exchange. So, I picked up the magic charm with my teeth oh. and whisked toward the flashlight. It's actually really cute. As uh, we hear him eavesdropping. Here's the plan. Tonight, we appear before the audience in these ancient costumes. We'll deliver the final warning then. Voices behind the wall, thinks Marquette. There's a secret chamber back there, as he jumps through the little hole. And we see a few men, uh, including Fazir, uh, dressed in the sort of Aztec-y clothes. As Fazir's saying, We'll frighten the fools into returning the tomb to our country. This will prove such an insult, our leader will be deposed, and I will become premier. And Mark, as the cat thinks... Fazir, so he's behind the plot. Not that poor student. Fazir goes on. But I warn you, Mark Merlin suspects something. If we find him snooping around here before our job is done, he must die. Uh-oh, thinks the cat. I better transfer back into my own body before they discover it and get rid of it at the bottom of the river. Get rid of what at the bottom of the river? His body. Oh, body. oh, before they discover it and get rid of his body. Yes. I think said, you better transform his mind into his body and get rid of it at the bottom of the room. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so as the cat scurries into the other room, Mark, oh no, what's happened? As Elsa's hanging over Mark's uh, unconscious body. Her cry brought Fazir. Mark, speak to me. Tell me you're not really dead. And the <laughs> cat's thinking, there's nothing I'd rather tell you, Elsa, but if I do, that assassin will make sure I do die as we see Fazir entering the room, drawing his sword. What's this? says Elsa. A ghost of a pharaoh's warrior? I must be going mad. Be gone, intruder, or you too shall find a resting place in Mankata's tomb, says Fazir threateningly, as Elsa flees. <laughs> like At a really strange angle. Yes, like, <laughs> mouth agape and face flushed. and just. This has gone better than I planned, says Fazir. Elsa will help to spread the panic. Now that the crowd will be arriving in the arena any moment, I must be ready for the finishing touch. What was that? Ha <laughs> ha, it's a cat. Nothing but a plain cat. As Marquette runs by. Marquette. Such a fitting symbol for the last act of our little drama. Ha <laughs> ha. Shortly, the curious throng poured into the arena to view the tomb that had gained so much terrifying publicity when... Look well, unbelievers, as Fazir comes out, holding the unconscious body of Mark. This is the fate of one who desecrated the tomb of my master, Mankata. As the crowd flees, ghosts of Mankata's warriors, Mark Merlin's body, get out of here before they destroy us all. Soon, after the panicky people stampeded from the arena, we've won, Fazir. Definitely. Now we must change to our own clothes. I must be in the embassy to receive the phone call demanding I remove the cursed tomb of Mankata. So shortly, as they're in their cities... That fanatical student was very useful to us. While the police are busy hunting for that innocent fellow, we... Fazir, tell me it's not true, says one of the henchmen, suddenly astonished, as we see the shimmering, glowing figure of uh, Queen Clotoma. It's Queen Clotoma, and the black cat, the pharaoh himself. 
They've come to claim us for the crimes we committed in their resting place. Calm down, you fool. It's a trick. It has to be. Suddenly, the cat breaks away. It stopped before you, Fazir. See? It scratches the earth. It's writing strange symbols. How can a cat do that? As uh, the cat's clawing some hieroglyphs into the floor. I'll tell you how, Fazir. That cat is the true spirit of Mankata, and those strange symbols are the ancient language of our people. It was the student Saik. Translated, this reads, Fazir is the criminal. He's brought shame upon me, Mankata. Aye, says Fazir. <laughs> it must be true. No trickster could train a cat to write in a language 4,000 years old. That's what he's doubting. <laughs> like, I think no trickster could train a cat to write in, in English. But, uh, but trembling with fright, Fazir babbled a full confession. And that giant mechanical cat I brought to this country was hidden in a van when the police thought it had vanished. Wait a minute, says the cop. Speaking of vanishing, that cat and the pharaoh's queen, they're gone now. I still don't understand that part at all. So, big reveal. After I reversed the charm's effect, says Mark, and Elsa had removed the costume borrowed from the exhibit in the lobby. Mark, alive, says the cop. Will you please tell me what's going on here? You know as much as I do, says Mark. I was unconscious for a while, a bad bump on the head from a low doorway in the tomb, so I can't explain much. And maybe no one ever will, Lieutenant. Later, in the privacy of my study, as Mark's holding a sort of sealed urn, the pharaoh's cat charm is in that, Mark? Do you suppose you'll ever use it again? It's a great temptation, Elsa. With magic like this, I could fight the forces of evil better than ever. But does any man have the right to use such great power? I'm still pondering that question. As he turns to the reader and says, maybe you can help me decide. Uh, so clearly they're uh, asking their audience, do you like Mark Merlin as a superhero? Do you want more stories where he has powers? Yeah, I think they're looking for feedback on that one. Yeah. So, so that begins the, uh, the superheroing of Mark, um, which is then going to continue in the next issue, House of Secrets number 61 from July of 63. That's a story called Dr. Seven, King of the Supernatural. Uh, written again by Arnold Drake, uh, with pencils and inks this time uh, by Mort Meskin. Uh, letters by Stan Starkman. Um, so let's take a look at the cover, uh, which is by an artist named Lee Elias, but we're going to hold off on the discussion of him until we get to the, the second story. Um, so what we see is basically a sinister-type man lurking over a little crystal ball as Elsa is holding it tightly on the other side. And inside the ball, we see uh, a tiny little Mark Merlin uh, thinking, Elsa's joined forces with my worst enemy to imprison me in this magic sphere. The title box above saying, Mark Merlin battles Dr. Seven, King of the Supernatural. And there is a little inset box here, um, which once again, we're going to hold off on. Um, but it says, introducing Fantastic Eclipso, hero and villain in one man. Uh, so that's the second feature, you know, they're going to be newly introduced in this issue. One thing I do want to note before we move on from uh, from this cover, anything jumping out at you, Mel, from, uh, from this particular piece of artwork? Uh, a few things, actually. You had said that like the, the guy was sinister. I would say that they're actually trying to make him look a little more like uh, like a devil. He's very angular, like triangular. And the way his hair is, it's almost like he has like tiny little horns. But the most obvious thing about this is that they're, they're using that like different colors to to create shadow. To create shadow, yeah. You got the, uh, yeah, that yellow coming off the ball, sort of casting the, the villain into shadow. Um, but that color is contrasting with the background color, which is what? Purple. Purple, right. And as we mentioned in the very first episode, that is one of the go-tos, you know, for uh, Silver Age comic sales. You know, for whatever reason, um, that, that purple background uh, was a huge seller. 
So, so let's crack open the cover then to the very first splash page, uh, which is our hero, Mark Merlin, sleuth of the supernatural. And our little narration reads, Mark Merlin has long been hailed as the world's greatest authority on witchcraft and occultism, but when he's challenged to a fantastic duel to proclaim the champion of the black arts, his foe is none other than Dr. Seven, king of the supernatural. As we see uh, Mark surrounded by a platoon of sort of medieval guards, it looks like. They are, they're all holding maces, you know, and they're circled around him, as uh, who I'm assuming must be Dr. Seven is in the background saying, there, Mark Merlin, I, Dr. Seven, not only gave life to an empty suit of armor, but I've multiplied it into a circle of death. You'll never stop them. I bet he will. <laughs> he, he may. <laughs> or will he? He's kind of slick. <laughs> yeah, let's, uh, let's see what he does. Um, so, in his brooding mansion, perched high on Mystery Hill, Mark Merlin, master of the supernatural, explains his action to Secretary Elsa. I've decided never to use the cat charm of the pharaoh again, says Mark. It saved my life once, giving me the power to transfer my life force into the body of my pal Memkata here, meaning the cat Memkata, um, when I was trapped by a trio of assassins. But if some criminal stole the power, no, the cat charm must remain locked away forever. Or will it? I doubt it. <laughs> Excuse me, says a man, suddenly entering. I fixed that broken light switch in your bedroom, Mr. Merlin. It'll work fine now. Thank you, says Mark. Elsa, let's quit for the day. We'll get a fresh start in that magazine article in the morning. Mark has a bedroom in his office. <laughs> Apparently, that's that's unusual. So later, the... I also like how uh, they're still referring to Elsa as a secretary. I mean, they're it's pretty clear they're dating, right? I would assume so. She gave him a big old hug when she got off that train. Um, so later that night in the city, a shadowy figure stealthily ascends a building as we get a sort of film noir type shot of a man, uh, you know, climbing up a fire escape. And once atop the roof, uh, he jumps off and crashes through the skylight into. Uh, what appears to be a museum, as he's standing in front of a pair of uh, dinosaur skeletons. And, uh, and grabbing a mace, uh, he cracks the head off of one of them. It's quite nice, uh, I think it's called chiaroscuro artwork, you know, sort of black and white type thing. It's very, like, almost uh, like what Frank Miller does in Sin City. You know, Mort Meskin's really pulling out all the, uh, the stops here. He's a good artist, I like him. Yeah. The following morning, after Elsa's return to work, as we uh, just depart from that little crime interlude there, how'd you get that cut on your cheek? Shaving? Probably. Here's something strange. A thief broke into the museum and stole only one thing. The jawbone of a prehistoric beast. I seem to remember reading about that being used in some kind of magic formula. Remind me to check it out in our master file when we get some time. That night, as Mark is fast asleep, Mark Merlin, rise from your bed. I, Dr. Seven, order you. As we see Mark seized by some sort of hypnotic music, and he stands up almost in a sleepwalking pose. Commanded by the strange voice, Mark descends the hall, moves through the empty, silent streets, and down into a tunnel beneath the city. I must obey, must obey. As we see Mark walking along a, a sort of cliff underground, like in a, almost a sewer from which he finally emerges into a taxidermist office, apparently, as he continues his uh, compulsion. Must obey, must obey, uh, obey, obey, <laughs> as he hits a uh, stuffed gorilla. <laughs> so, later that night, Mark, I finished typing that script sooner than I thought. I brought it. Mark, what's happened to you? Your eyes, ah! <laughs> the terrifying cry jolts Mark back to consciousness. Elsa, 
What am I doing out here, dressed like this? I don't know. Come inside, we'll talk about it. Tuning in soothing music on the radio, they start to discuss his strange appearance when... Special bulletin. The oddball thief who raided the museum struck again. This time he wrecked a taxidermist shop and apparently stole only a single ostrich feather. Mark, what's, look what's on your shoulder. Great Scott, says Mark. That's the piece of an ostrich feather. That means I stole that... And the beast bone, too. Oh, so that was Mark in the, uh, the oh, yeah. dinosaur. I didn't realize that. I did. Um, and, and But now he remembers what they're used for. An ancient Chinese sorcerer, Char Kung, had a potion that included both those elements. It was said to give a man power over his greatest enemy. I collected those things for someone unknown to me and for some unknown purpose. Someone commanded me while I slept, and will do it again. But there's one way to beat him, by using the cat charm. I can transfer my life force to the cat and follow my body to his hideout. Be careful, Mark. Oh, God. So, so that night, a fantastic scene unfolds. As, uh, Mark must have used the charm because we see the cat thinking. Mm-hmm. I'll never get used to this feeling of staring at myself while I'm inside the cat. My body's in a state of near coma. That, that music coming from my room, it's the hypnotic flute of the Incas. Mark Merlin, rise again, come to me. As we see once again the hypnotic notes. And Mark's semi-coma body even apparently is... Uh, seized by that compulsion because he's going into a sleepwalking thing. So That's wait, interesting. Does that, yeah, is that the mind of the cat in Mark's body? Um, so anyway, as uh, sleepwalking Mark continues all the way outside the city to a, a castle on the outskirts uh, because he arrives at it and the uh, Mark cat, which is following him, thinks, I've never seen this castle before, although I've been through the area many times. Whoever this man is, he has the fantastic powers of the supernatural. And upon reaching the uh, castle, uh, Sleepwalking Mark grabs a great iron knocker on the door as it echoes through the still night. Uh, The door opens and we see uh, our sinister man from the cover. Welcome back, Mark Merlin. I've used the things which you stole from me to complete the potion of Charkong. With it, I have gained permanent dominance over my most powerful enemy, you. I see your pet cat followed you. It was watching me the day I hid the miniature radio in your bedroom light fixture. Oh, he was the electrician. And the cat's thinking the same thing I am. He was the electrician. <laughs> now I know how he could broadcast the hypnotic flute music on a special wavelength, as uh, the three of them are led into a great hallway. That red light, continues uh, evil guy, signaled the moment you entered your room at night. Then the tape recorder automatically broadcasts the recorded music and commands. Very clever, thinks Catmark, but I've got a few tricks of my own for, for Dr. Seven. How do we know his name? Did he mention his name yet well it's it's in the title (laughs) yeah i don't think the cat read the title it's a smart cat (laughs) hmm well let's continue on maybe it's revealed you know says dr seven apparently uh the hypnotic flute's power is short-lived with char kung's potion i can always have you under control that's what he thinks thinks cat mark the candlelight is shining right on the charm and as the light reflects from the jeweled eyes of the charm to the cat's eyes, Mark instantly and invisibly is transferred back to his own body. You're the only one who could equal my supernatural powers, but now, what's happened? You're, you're smiling. You don't control me any longer, says Mark. Now we'll see how powerful your magic is, pitted against mine, Dr. Seven. Do you dare challenge me to a supernatural duel? Very well. Watch that tapestry on the wall. In one moment, it will spell your doom. Don't look, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> so as Dr. Seven begins a strange incantation, the red light flashes unseen by either, and the tape recorder begins to spin. Zastro, Melagul, Nem Toxi, Metapol, 
Zasturo Mela, as uh, Dr. Seven's chanting out some ancient spell. It doesn't rhyme. That one's not going to work. No, that's going to fail. <laughs> so, but at that very moment, back at Mark Merlin's manor, the door of Mark's room is opened, flashing the signal. I couldn't wait any longer, thinks Elsa. I had to know if Mark was safe from that. Oh, he's gone. And what's that strange music? I, Dr. Seven, command you, we hear the voice behind the music. You must obey. Yes, I must obey. You are my master, says Elsa. <laughs> As Dr. Seven finishes his weird chant, boom, the cannon in the painting comes alive and fires a cannonball into the room. Great ghosts, thinks Mark. Dr. Seven somehow learned the rituals of the witches of Cardiff that gives life to inanimate things. Only one chance to save myself. The witches of Cardiff. I've never heard of that, but Mark <laughs> Merlin's very astute. That's right. He's schooled in, uh, in all forms of sorcery. Um, so what Mark does is seizes one of the ancient magical devices he usually pockets. The red dust of Ramses. You must have read about that somewhere, Dr. Seven. Yes, Merlin. A legendary formula of the Egyptians that was supposed to disintegrate metal. And now I see that it was no mere legend, but I'm not through yet. As Mark sprinkles his uh, Ramses dust on, on the cannon, and indeed it does uh, disintegrate away. So gesturing to a suit of armor, Dr. Seven repeats the witch's chant as he makes the suit of armor come alive. Not very impressive, Dr. Seven. I can easily handle one enchanted figure. One, says Dr. Seven. Look again. With another sweep of his hand, an entire room full of armored figures starts coming at Mark. <laughs> Sorry, Mark Merlin looks like he's about ready to have a heart attack there. <laughs> he does. He's, he's got his hand over his heart. <laughs> so he also knows the Mesopotamian art of multiplication. I know the answer to this, but have I time? Again, he plunges his hands into his pocket and pulls free two strange metal rods. Cagliostro's fire! The negative and positive rods transmute all my body's energy into heat, and the flames are melting your enchanted knights. As Mark uh, is waving these two wands around himself, creating basically a... Uh, ring of fire? Yeah, like a ring of fire is, the, you know, is jutting out, hitting each one of the uh, suits of armor, melting them. You're through, Dr. Seven, and I'm going to make sure of it. Don't be so hasty, Merlin. I still have the potion of Char Kong. But you can't reach it now, says Merlin. No, I can't, but I have someone here who can. I command you, says Dr. Seven uh, to Elsa, hiding behind. Uh, splash the potion on Mark Merlin. Think you can fool me by making me turn around to see if there's someone there? That's the oldest trick in the book. It is. Um, but we do see Elsa, uh, sort of zombie-eyed, you know, just under Dr. Seven's control. Let's turn the page. It's exciting. <laughs> <laughs> But the sound of Elsa grasping the bowl from its stand causes Mark to whirl. Elsa, the hypnotic music must have somehow enslaved you too. I must obey. I must. I control you now, Mark Merlin, body and mind. And I order you to be imprisoned within my glass sphere. As crazy-eyed Elsa splashes the uh, uh, potion on Mark. And I can only assume Mark must pass out and wake up in, <laughs> in a strange place. Because we cut to the next panel and we see tiny little Mark Merlin uh, inside the... Uh, in the crystal ball uh, from the cover. Great ghosts, Tiny Mark's thinking. Char Kung's magic reduced me and imprisoned me, and it was my own Elsa who helped put me here. Can't break out, but I just remembered a way to escape, as Mark's tapping on the glass. The cat charm, which can transfer my life force out of here and into Memkata's body. As Mark pulls out the charm and apparently activates it, because in the next second, it worked, thinks Mark Cat. Now inside the cat, I can free myself from the spell. Legend says that if you fling Char Kung's potion back at the enemy who cast it on you, the spell's broken. And uh, we see Dr. Seven looking very disturbedly at the uh, unconscious body of Mark inside the uh, crystal ball. Uh, but suddenly, 
Little paws. Yeah, as the cat jumps up and knocks over the potion. <laughs> this tiny little feet. Um, so instantly, uh, there's a crashing sound as Mark Merlin grows to full size, uh, destroying the crystal ball. Later, as the cops show up, do you think an ordinary jail can hold me, Merlin? Do you really think you've seen the last of Dr. Seven? I've stripped you of every magic powder and potion. Without them, you're just an ordinary crook with a giant ego, says Mark. Dr. Seven really believed him caught a playfully knocked the bowl out of his hands, says Elsa. Let him, says Mark. It's better that than no one ever learned the secret of the Pharaoh's charm, Elsa, as Mark looks longingly at his cat charm. <laughs> right on, Mark Merlin. Yeah. So, so as I say, yeah, the, these two stories back to back are really the, uh, the beginning of the uh, change for Mark Merlin. You know, in the first one, he got his little superpower. And then in the second one, uh, he gets his supervillain, which, uh, believe it or not, Dr. Seven comes back no fewer than five times in like a handful of stories, like maybe 10 more Mark Merlin stories. Five of them are Dr. Seven. Oh, so he's an arch nemesis then. Yeah, exactly. Um, and this process is not over by a long shot. Uh, I'm just going to throw something out here, um, just a name, and we're just going to let it simmer for a while. We're not going to deal with it tonight, but in a couple episodes, we're going to come back around to this. The name is Prince Raman. Okay? Just hold that in mind. Okay. <laughs> like I say, you know, just a little teaser for some stuff to come. Um, but, speaking of things to come, in this very issue, as I mentioned, uh, a second feature was introduced, uh, which for the remainder of House of Secrets would basically be Mark Merlin's co-feature. Um, they would alternate back and forth as to who got the lead, who got the cover, and that fellow is a character by the name of Eclipso. The guy from the cover. Yes. So basically, what Eclipso is, is... You're familiar with the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? Yes. Right. So he's kind of like that. He's a normal dude, um, through a series of events, uh, winds up transforming into an evil version of himself. Well, initially, an evil version of himself, and then later on, uh, they actually split into, into two beings. But at least for this first story, let's just assume that it's a, an evil version of himself. Um, it was a handful of concepts introduced by uh, a writer by the name of Bob Haney. And as this podcast goes on, you're going to become very familiar with that name because Bob Haney is one of the wackiest writers in all of DC Comics history. Um, Bob Haney had little to no adherence uh, to established continuity. Basically, he just thought, if it's a good story idea, I'm going to run with it and continuity be damned. Um, some of the characters that he invented, uh, a guy by the name of Metamorpho, uh, who is a dude who can turn into any element. Um, so there, nice. Yeah, he can like turn into like helium, or he can turn it into you know carbon, or you know what have you. Um, the Teen Titans, you might have heard of, you know Robin and Kid Flash and all the sort of junior heroes. Uh, Bob Haney basically came up with that and really latched onto that whole youth culture thing. Like you saw some of the snapper car type stuff. Teen Titans was that to the nth degree. I mean, everything was Daddy O and that type thing. Um, <laughs> So and then, but but another character he invented is the one we're going to take a look at tonight, uh, Eclipso. Uh, I was reading an interview with him, and it turns out he was never really satisfied with the execution of the concept. He had the basis for an idea, but he he said he felt it was like a little rushed, getting out the door, and unfortunately, he never saw it visualized on the page the way he had it in, in his mind. Um, so you can be the judge as to whether or not you know he succeeds with the concept. Um, but an interesting little Easter egg about this is. Uh, his editor at the time uh, was a fellow by the name of Jack Schiff, who you may or may not remember, uh, I mentioned was the man who had oversight over all the Batman titles, 
right? Mm, Jack yes. Schiff basically was the editor for Detective and Batman. And uh, so it was almost a little inside joke. The other identity of Eclipso is named Bruce Gordon. Um, so, I, you know, kind of similar. Right. Well, not kind of similar. So Bruce Wayne, Commissioner Gordon. Uh-huh. And so, yeah. Uh, yeah, so so he wrote that and, you know, he put it out there and it sort of like flew under the radar. But then when Jack Schiff saw it, he, you know, I was reading in this interview, uh, he said he was not pleased. But, you know, what can you do? It was already, yeah. it was already put to bed. And so what? It's just a tiny little joke. Um, the artist on the story, as we saw on the cover, is a fellow by the name of Lee Elias. Um, not really known so much for his DC work. Uh, his, his biggest claim to fame probably is a character he came up with for Harvey Comics uh, called the Black Cat sort of a femme fatale type character who fought crime. And she's an example of what was called at the time good girl art. I don't know if you've ever heard that phrase. Nope. Yeah, it's basically like cheesecake, if you can imagine that. Sort of, you know, um, well-shaped woman in a, you know, a scantily cut outfit. And unfortunately, it was one of the examples that was used in Frederick Wortham's book as an example of depraved art. Uh, and yeah, and that never really sat well with uh, Leo Elias. It kind of soured him on the whole thing. And so for a while, he actually stepped away from comic books. Mm. Um, so this actually represents a, a bit of his return uh, to the industry after maybe like a, you know, a decade absence. Oh, wow. Um, he doesn't stay long on this feature. Uh, he's actually replaced by a fellow, Alex Toth, who... He's a great artist, but his comic work is probably not as well known as his cartoon work. He's the fellow who in the 70s would design a lot of those Saturday morning type icons like uh, uh, Space Ghost and like, you know, and and Thundar the Barbarian, um, Herculoids. And and then believe it or not, he's the guy who uh, did the original designs for the Super Friends, uh, which were then later handled by different animators. Um, so yeah, Alex Toth is going to come on to Eclipso, but at least initially, first couple stories, Leo Elias. Okay. All right. So another note about this feature is its uniqueness in the sense that it's a villain-focused feature. Um, I don't know for certain whether this was the first example of that in DC. I know later on in the 70s, there would be a Joker ongoing series, and then Secret Society of Supervillains was like a villain team. But I think as far as individual villain series he doesn't have the title obviously it's his house of secrets but he may be the first recurrent villain with his own like sort of uh title-headed series there was an earlier one from a different publishing company called the claw who was very big in world war ii but um but for dc i think this may be a first how was that okay with the comics code authority well, it didn't necessarily violate anything. You know, it, like I say, you know, there weren't overt descriptions of violence. There was no drug use. There was no, you know, killing of law enforcement. You know, so those were the type of things that, um, you know, the, the code was looking for. Uh, villain focused. I don't think there was anything explicit in the code that precluded that. So that's exactly what I was thinking is that there must be some kind of law enforcement element in there. So, like, I guess did the did the villains always lose then in order to be compliant? That's a really good point, because now that you say that, I, I do sort of recall there was something that said that uh, good must always triumph over evil. Yeah. Maybe, he, you know what, maybe he does. Let, let's take a look at the story, and maybe, I don't know, I'm not that familiar with the Eclipse of Stories, but maybe he's defeated at the end of each story. Yeah. Just because he headlines doesn't necessarily mean he wins. Um, so yeah, so let's go ahead and take a look. Let's uh, turn the pages then in House of Secrets 61. Um, skipping the Palisades Park ad. Oh, do you miss it? <laughs> yes, I do. <laughs> and going right to the story itself, uh, Eclipso, the genius who fought himself. 
uh, as you mentioned, written by Bob Haney, uh, with pencils and inks by Lee Elias, and letters by Stan Starkman. So we begin with the narration box. The vast unknown powers of the sun and moon combine with a freakish fate to divide Dr. Bruce Gordon, brilliant young scientist, into two beings, one dedicated to humanity, the other to ruthless destruction. Introducing the amazing man who's both hero and villain, Eclipso, the genius who fought himself. As we see a sort of divided splash page, uh, sort of two diagonal panels, uh, the upper of which is uh, Eclipso himself, uh, as we'll soon learn, uh, sort of evil-looking fellow in a, in a purple and, and black garb with a, you know, a sort of skull cap, uh, and his face is obscured by uh, what appears to be a shadow. And he's thinking, I've triumphed over Dr. Bruce Gordon and destroyed his creation, Solar City. And then in the lower panel, uh, we see Bruce Gordon himself being consoled by uh, a man uh, standing behind him saying, Only we too know your shocking secret, Bruce, that Eclipso, your enemy, and you, Dr. Bruce Gordon, are one and the same. And uh, something really unique, something that we have not seen before, is actually... A signature. Lee Elias uh, apparently signed his artwork here. As we see a little oval with uh, his signature in there. Way to go, Lee. So, we turn the page and begin... It's a happy day as officials in a cheerful throng listen to Professor Simon Bennett at the dedication of the world's first community to be run on the sun's limitless energy. And we see a sort of celebration. Shortly, Dr. Bruce Gordon, who helped develop this project, will join me in pulling the switch that will turn the reflectors toward the sun, and Solar City will become a dream come true, as an expectant crowd listens on. But nearby, at that very moment, Oh, Bruce, darling, what a wonderful day. The opening of Solar City and Dad announcing our engagement. I'm so happy I could light up the whole town without the sun's help. As Bruce says, If I don't finish these last-minute adjustments, Mona, honey, Solar City will never get dedicated. See you shortly. Mona, honey. Yep. As Bruce Gordon retreats back to his lab, uh, taking a look at uh, what appears to be some sort of experiment going on, uh, this black diamond has resisted all my attempts to analyze its prismatic properties. Well, no matter. I've got to finish here and join the professor. Thousands of miles away, above the trackless wastes of the South Pacific, one of the universe's most momentous events begins, a total eclipse of the sun. And at that very moment, in the isolated laboratory back in Solar City, Ugh, oh, says Bruce Gordon, suddenly feel odd. Wouldn't it be ironic getting ill on the biggest day of my life? But then, as shuddering waves rack him, a fantastic change begins to sweep over his features, his very brain. What's happening to me as we see a shadow beginning to creep over his face i'm being transformed it's now halfway through into something greater stronger than that fool bruce gordon as the crescent moon shadow crosses across his face listen to eclipse world i'm here to declare war on the forces of good as bruce strikes a uh, an evil pose hands clenched it's, a, it's an impressive voice you're doing. <laughs> so with demonic directness, the transformed scientist moves to a locker and, <laughs> moments later, having donned the weird costume, where'd he get the costume? You know, from the locker. <laughs> yeah. The <fanta> <laughs> <laughs> so having donned this weird costume, and it's very weird indeed, um, the fantastic figure grasps the black diamond. My enemy, Bruce Gordon, failed to find the power of the dark jewel, but Eclipso won't fail. So shortly, as all await Bruce's appearance, What are you doing here? The crowd shouts as Eclipso scurries over the bridge. I'll stop him, whoever he is, says Mr. Bennett. 
But before Bennett can do a thing, Eclipso pulls out the black diamond, holds it to his eye. Can't see! I'm trapped in a beam of light! Says Bennett as black light is shooting directly out uh, from the diamond. And as the people on the platform stumble into the sudden darkness, Yes, it's time to dedicate Solar City, but not the way Bruce Gordon expected. As Eclipso grabs the lever and clicks it, and instantly, chemically polished reflectors swing hungrily toward the sun, aluminum collectors absorb its vast energy, and Solar City's complex begins to hum. Dad, he set everything into motion, says Mona Honey. There he goes. <laughs> we'll find Bruce, Mona. We'll catch him. But as Professor Bennett and the police leap onto the moving streets, Eclipso's not having any of it. He holds the diamond up to his eye and shoots out another beam. He's ignoring us, aiming that black light on the Plastidome. What's he up to? Plastidome? Yeah. In the next moment, the dome's cracking from temperature extremes caused by half of it being saturated with solar energy and half by cold shadow. Jump! We can't. That villain reached the main control station and increased the pace. As we cut to Mona, Bruce has disappeared. Where could he have gone to? Meanwhile, in a few more minutes, Bruce Gordon's prize project will be so much debris as Eclipso is uh, finagling the controls. Powerful light-reflecting devices casting intense beams of thermal energy swing and tilt wildly at their targets. Solar City's destroyed, says Bennett. It's being melted like wax. And as the entirety of Solar City is, is, you know, burst into flames, just crumbling around them. Dad, you're all right. I couldn't find Bruce. As Mona comes running up to her dad. Yes, I'm all right, dear, but you better get out of here. Eclipso surveys the fleeing, panicky crowd. Solar City's completely wrecked. Now to leave a trap for Dr. Bruce Gordon. There he is, says Bennett. That's saboteur. Got to catch him. Maybe he's behind Bruce's disappearance. Suddenly, a wild whirling reflector beam stabs the somber figure. It it staggered him. He's entering our underground lab. It must stop him before he ruins it, too. The Eclipso flees underground. But eluding his pursuer, he doffs his costume. A perfect hiding place. An ordinary man couldn't stand this radiation, but it doesn't affect Eclipso. As he removes his costume and sort of stashes it in the lab. And so, from the lead-lined chamber, the lone figure staggers into another room. No one will find me here, and in a few moments, Eclipso will vanish until it comes time for him to reappear. But as Professor Bennett races in, Bruce, I found you at last. Where have you been? Bruce, what's wrong? And in shock disbelief, the professor witnesses the fantastic and incredible metamorphosis as he's looking down at what clearly appears to be Bruce, but with the eclipsed face. No, I can't, says Bennett. Believe it, he says as the shadow begins retreating. But... That saboteur was you, Bruce, all along. And uh, as he finishes and Bruce's face is contorted back to uh, normalcy. Professor Bennett, how did I get in here? Says the recovered Bruce. I was in the lab, getting ready for the dedication. You, you mean you don't know about the transformation? What you did? You don't remember anything at all? Quickly, in an awed voice, he blurts out the explanation. And that's what happened, Bruce, every fantastic bit of it. My last recollection, says Bruce, was looking at that black diamond in the lab. Diamond, where is it now? Continued on the third page following. Who, Mark Merlin's mailbox. I didn't know Mark Merlin had his own letter page. <laughs> I might have to come back to this in a little bit. <laughs> it's a letter by Tom Jones. <laughs> oh, is it addressed from Wales? <laughs> no, no, not quite. It's not the same guy? All right, well, we'll just skip over Mark's mailbag and continue on to the exciting uh, Eclipso story. So Bennett continues, the diamond and that costume, you had them all in your other identity. You must have hidden them before the change took place. I brought the costume back from Diablo Island, says <laughs> Bruce. Wow. <laughs> but what made me put it on when I changed? As Bruce starts going through papers. What will you find there? Asks Bennett. Part of the answer, says Bruce. 
Today, in the South Pacific, at the time that I was in the lab, a total solar eclipse took place. You recall, I went to Diablo Island to photograph a solar eclipse, as we see a bit of a flashback. Won't you carry my equipment to the top of the plateau? Bruce asked the, uh, the natives. Mofir, our seer, has warned, if you try to capture the sun god's image when he is dark, he will destroy us in anger. He's lying, says Bruce. Eclipses aren't dangerous. Here are pictures I made of a dark sun. I wasn't harmed. True, they are only pictures after all, says the native. And once their fears were dispelled, I easily won them over. I carried my gear up here just in time, thinks Bruce. The eclipse will begin very soon. But behind him, we see a, a figure approaching. Who are you? He asks, uh, startled by a man wearing the Eclipso outfit. Mofir, you have defied me by scoffing at my warning to my people. Now I shall take my revenge, as he's holding out the, the black diamond toward Bruce. This black stone which fell from the heavens will protect me from you. Why, that's a black diamond, thinks Bruce. As he lunged, I sidestepped the thrust of his weapon, hitting his wrist as they scuffle on top of the uh, cliff. And the momentum of his charge carried him over the brink. As we see Mofir falling, but oh, his diamond cut me! As we return to present day, ironically, Bruce continues, the darkness of the total eclipse prevented him from seeing the precipice. The natives, grateful to be free of his tyranny, gave me his costume and the diamond. Well, how does all of this fit in with your awful change? asked Bennett. I'm not sure. Maybe emanations from that first eclipse affected my body cells, my body cells, and today triggered off my transformation. Possibly, says Bennett. Solar corona rays bombard the Earth unimpeded only during eclipses, but why haven't the others been affected by such exposure? Is there another factor involved, like the diamond which cut me, says Bruce? That could be it, but we can't examine it since my other self hid it. Let's try to search for it, says Bennett. So we turn the page as they emerge above ground into the, the ruins of Solar City. This, this is terrible, Professor. I destroyed our dream town. No, Bruce. It wasn't you, but your villainous alter ego, your other self. And Bruce climbs up into uh, the ruins of the control tower. This note in my handwriting, listen. Dr. Bruce Gordon, I challenge you to fight me. Light versus darkness. Do you dare accept your enemy, Eclipso? Good heavens, Professor. I'm not my own worst enemy, but mankind's. Easy, boy. We're going to fight this Eclipso and beat him. You owe it to yourself to preserve your great talents. To Mona, to the world. But Bruce isn't hearing any of it because he flees off. Bruce! Bruce, where are you going? Why are you going up there? As he starts scaling a, uh, a stadium light. Is anything wrong with you? Answer me! Don't worry, Professor. I know what I'm doing. I have to rip these out, or in another minute, the whole area will blow sky high. And he does something up there, and then climbs down as Bennett waits for him. You mean that solar amplifier was rigged? Yes, I spotted a short-circuit Eclipso cause. That would have devastated Solar City if we tried to rebuild. How can we fight such a cunning enemy? You just did fight him, says Bennett, and you won. Remember, you both share the same brain. You're evenly matched. Bruce, darling, you're all right. Where'd you vanish? Says Mona as she comes running up. I was knocked out, Mona, but I'm all right now. I wanted to talk to you about our marriage, honey. It'll have to be postponed. But why, Bruce, why? I've got to, <laughs> <laughs> I've got to devote all my time to rebuilding Solar City and... Don't bother, Dr. Gordon. I can take a hint. Science and romance don't mix. Girl, didn't you not just see what just happened? Yeah. <laughs> like, I, oh, but wait, she didn't because, all right, I couldn't tell her that marriage is impossible because of Eclipso. That's why I'm going to start to work at once to prevent him from ever taking over your body and brain again, says Bennett, pointing the stub of his pipe at him. <laughs> <laughs> so with the aid of Professor Bennett, Bruce sets out to fight himself as we see them uh, hurriedly doing calculations. 
An eclipse of the moon is due in three weeks, says Bennett. It could trigger your transformation into Eclipso again. I can't destroy Eclipso. It would mean the end of Bruce Gordon, too. If only I could hide someplace. But where? I don't know. Turn the page. <laughs> so. How about this wind tunnel, <laughs> says, <laughs> says Bennett. <laughs> Let's hide in there. Yeah. If you're locked inside when that eclipse occurs, it should prevent your change. Thus, when the fateful time does approach... Three minutes to go, Bruce. I'll be in constant touch via the walkie-talkie. Good luck, son. Thanks, Professor. See you soon. I hope. And Bruce enters the wind tunnel as Bennett locks the door behind him. So as the escape-proof hatch clangs shut on Dr. Bruce Gordon, inside, illuminated only by the dim glow of a small red bulb, Bruce, the eclipse has begun. Did you notice any change? Comes Bennett's voice <laughs> over the, the walkie-talkie. <laughs> None whatsoever, Professor. Bruce, things all right? Fine and dandy, Professor. No change yet. How about now? Not at all. I'm still Bruce Gordon. We're outside, and that's why I'm doing my <laughs> walkie-talkie voice from the other side. <laughs> Bruce, the eclipse is ending. We won. It worked. Open the hatch and let me out. But as Bennett opens the hatch, Eclipso, you tricked me! As sure enough, Bruce Gordon has the shadow cast over his face and scowling lunges at, uh, at Bennett and seizing the professor, thrusts him into the tunnel, clanging the door shut behind him. That'll hold him while I get my costume from its hiding place. So minutes later, as we see Eclipso has donned his costume, beside Bruce Gordon, only the professor knows my secret. I can't get rid of Gordon, of course, but the professor must die. As we see Eclipso uh, hitting some buttons and uh, the wind tunnel controllers, the props beginning to spin. Eclipso set it into motion. As Bennett swept off his feet to the, uh, the raging blades, I'm being swept into the prop. Another moment and the professor will... Rah! As a, uh, a sudden explosion occurs and Eclipso is knocked back by a zap as the wind tunnel door is blown open. As Eclipso stumbles away, Bennett thinks, an explosion stopped the prop and blasted the lock. Eclipso is getting away. I've got to follow him. But Eclipso eludes his pursuer, and when the professor finally catches up to him, too late, he switched back to Bruce again after hiding the costume in the diamond. Bruce, are you all right? As we see uh, Bruce sort of knocked out there on the floor. Oh, Professor, thank heavens you're safe. I turned into Eclipso again, didn't I? Yes, said the Professor, and tricked me into letting out of the tunnel where I'd have been killed if an explosion hadn't freed me. And Bruce explains, well, as Bruce, I rigged the board to emit a high-photon light burst in case Eclipso escaped and turned the tables on you. Remember, you said an intense light caused him to revert to Bruce Gordon before. The hatch was sprung by a small time bomb I'd set. Brilliant, says Bennett. Eclipso outsmarted me, but not you, Bruce. You're more than a match for him. Perhaps, says Bruce, but this was only round one. He'll be back at the next eclipse, and who will win then? Yes, who will be the victor, says the narration box. Get the thrilling answer in the next issue. And then we see a final note uh, from the editor. What do you think of Eclipso? Write House of Secrets, care of national periodicals. And uh, so, yeah, they're really sort of... They're talking to the audience. Yeah, same thing with Mark Merlin, right? You know, like, do you want Mark Merlin to have powers? Do you want to see more of Eclipso? They have no idea what to do. Right, yeah. <laughs> They're like, come on, kids, tell us. <laughs> what, do, what do you like? Yeah. You so. want more purple? We got purple. <laughs> <laughs> so, so yeah, so that was the introduction of Eclipso. And, you know, honestly, what you saw is basically the pattern that's going to be followed in story after story. Mm -hmm. Um Bruce Gordon transformed by an eclipse, which seems to happen with, you know, increasing frequency. Like, you know, who knew that there was that many solar eclipses? And then the only way he can defeat him is by, you know, bright light and, you know, and so on and so forth. And basically it's man versus himself. 
Um, as I say, you know, as far as cover features, it would sort of be rotating back and forth between, you know, Mark Merlin and Eclipso for a time. Mm -hmm. And then, uh, and then once again, I'm going to throw this name out here, just a little, uh, a little hint, a little, you know, uh, yes. uh, morsel for the future. Prince Raman, also involved with Eclipso. Involved with Merlin, involved with Eclipso. We might see a little bit of a crossover going on. I'm not, I'm not going to spoil it, but uh, just put that up on the shelf for now. Okay. All right. So that's it for tonight. Uh, as I say, you know, uh, House of Secrets, really a sort of staging ground for a couple new concepts. You know, we saw the, the superheroing of Mark Merlin to continue, and we saw the introduction of Eclipso also to continue. So with that in mind now, I'm going to... Put the controls in, in your hands and ask for a little bit of feedback from my, uh, my beautiful parliament here. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. So, our, our first issue that we took a look at was uh, House of Secrets number 60, um, the, uh, the first Mark Merlin tale, the captive of the cat curse. Uh, what did you think about that story? I like it. The bird gets to live. It's, it's interesting because Mark Merlin as a character, like his stories don't really make a lot of sense if you <laughs> analyze them, but they're fun to listen to. Yeah. Um, they, I'll tell you one thing, like they always sort of surprise me. Like, you know, we talked last time about the sort of like, you know, twist endings in House of Secrets. Almost invariably, as we've been reading these Mark Merlin stories, there's a moment where I'm like, oh. That's where know? they're going with yeah, this? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's kind of neat. Yeah, me too. Um, and it's funny you should say that because, like, here I'm I'm a newcomer to this. And, like, it, but their hints are really strong. Like, for example, like, um, Queen Clotoma looked uh, like Elsa. Like and you're Elsa. like, okay, yeah. so I should probably take note of that. Um, and, I'll, again, with the artwork in House of Secrets, I remember, like, there was this one really early 60s panel with like the big like diagonal face on there and that was it was really fun and i saw that repeated in the second story that we did yeah but i saw yeah. some actually i saw some almost like film noir elements in the in that one you know where the guy was climbing up the um the the outside ladder the sort of fire escape type thing you know and we mentioned before yeah mort meskin uh really had that sort of uh, cinematic approach you know so definitely yeah. he was pulling some of that in um mark merlin definitely has a theme going on where he uh he somehow loses consciousness and then, like, <laughs> awakens with, like, something else. It's Elsa, I'm telling you. Elsa's slipping on Mickey. <laughs> She's doing something. Yeah. What did you think? So, okay, but the uh, the main thing about that story, though, was the introduction of the superpower, you know. So, yeah. so And they were definitely pulling the readers. Did you want to see more of that? You know, so, yeah, no, absolutely. So let me put it to you. Did you want to see more of that? Was that what you were looking for in a Mark Merlin tale, or was that really from left field? Um, I think they really could have gone either way. But, I mean, if the societal trend was to go more towards uh, superheroes, then, yeah, by all means, you know, give them some little superhero powers. I thought the cat was really cute. The cat was cute. Yeah, and it's like... Especially with the the hieroglyphics mm. at the end, it was like, oh, look at you, you're adorable. <laughs> yeah, but yeah, at, at the end they're like, will he use his cat power again? And it's like, yeah, <laughs> of course he will. Why are you even asking? So, all right, so good. So, captive of the cat curse, that that bird lives. Yes, which, which is strange. The the cat lets the bird live. Um, all right, so moving on then to House of Secrets number sixty one. Uh, we had two stories there. The first one being Doctor Seven, King of the Supernatural. What are your, what are your thoughts on uh, on Mark's arch nemesis? So this one was interesting because with this one, I thought that because um, right, right in the beginning, when uh, when you were saying you know, like the shadowy figure broke into a, a museum, I recognized it. You know, he was 
He's wearing the same suit. Oh, you oh you knew that was Mark? I didn't know it was. I did, and I thought it was going to kill the story, and I was like, crap, I saw it right away. Mm. And then, like, it was confirmed, you know, because, like, also the next day she notices um, a cut on uh, on Merlin's cheek. And I was like, well, there it is. I'm going to put this story away. But it didn't matter, you know, because the story was still engaging and they'd draw you all the way through. And then, you know, and then Elsa gets drawn into it. And then, like, you know. So what do you think about the introduction of, like, an arch nemesis for, for Mark Merlin? You know, I know these stories have been going on for a while. And it's uh, kind of, like, out of left field, you know. How did you feel about old uh, Doc Seven? I think it's good. I think it adds uh, some depth. And I think that like, because the, the Mark Merlin stories definitely have a certain pattern going to them. Mm. So it we, we probably needed something else, you know, like add. To mix like, it up. Yeah. 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 A little bit. Yeah. He was a little cheesy though. He sort of had that like Saturday matinee Vincent Price thing going on, don't you think? Yeah. But you know, it, it kind of works, you know, and like we all know that like Mark Merlin's like, you know, he's so extremely perceptive that he's going to be able to work his way around anything, even if he is trapped in a globe. Yeah, that's true. So, so second bird flies away then. Yep. Mark Merlin uh, you know, gives it a twofer. All right, um, final story then, the second half of House of Secrets 61, Eclipso, the genius who fought himself. Um, what did you think about that story? Um, I did like the, the splash page. It was really neat. Um, oh, the, the sort way. of divided uh, triangular thing? Yeah. yeah. Now, was that Mark Muskin as well? No, no, no. Remember, that's Lee Elias. Oh, okay. Yeah, because I was thinking, you know, I was looking at the artwork and like having it split like that was, uh, it, it was different. But then I also I was looking at like how it was illustrated and and it, it seemed to be completely different. Yeah. I, as I mentioned before, he had sort of stepped away from comics for a while. He actually did some commercial artwork. So maybe some of what you're seeing there, design elements was almost from like an advertising background. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um. So I know it's not a direct correlation, but um, there was something about Eclipso that reminded me of the Hulk. And yeah, okay, I could see that. It's that sort of like man versus himself, you know, sort of like, uh, you know, circumstances that transform him in, into, you know, an evil version. Uh, Hulk actually preceded this. I, I want to say, you know, Hulk was definitely sort of early 60s. Um, but yeah, it's it's definitely that, that same sort of Jekyll and Hyde type thing, right? You know, the, yeah. the evil within. Yeah, absolutely. Overall, though, I have to say, like this, this story was uh, it was really cheesy and 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 not very engaging at all. Yeah, I, honestly, like I don't think we're gonna do too many Eclipso stories, at least from you know early on in the House of Secrets run, because there it's a lot, a lot of that. Um, later on, he's gonna become a much more powerful character. In the 90s, they sort of reinvented him as a, a, a spirit of vengeance, you know, almost mm. like, you know, a, a primordial evil in this world or whatever. But yeah, at least these early stories, it's basically just, you know, Wah-ha-ha, you know, I've gone evil. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, so this is going to be our first executed bird of the night. Um, the the best thing I can say about this is that I really liked your Eclipso voice. <laughs> oh, thank, thank you. <laughs> take that on the road. Um so, okay, so we got uh, two thumbs up and one thumb down. I, actually, I, I could have predicted that going in. I know you sort of had an affinity for the, the last Mark Merlin tale, and I knew these were going to be, uh, you know, a little bit more of the same, same type artwork, you know, same type uh, narrative. But, yeah, I kind of had a feeling about Eclipse, yeah. so that I, I think those early stories, they don't sit well with anyone. <laughs> um, so, so, as I mentioned, next time out, uh, we are going to take a swing back around to the, uh, the superhero stuff. We're going to resume... Uh, with Justice League a couple more years out from where we left off, 
And what we're going to be seeing is the first of what would be many, many crossovers with the Justice Society. Uh, we talked about that that Golden Age team, you know, with all the sort of um, earlier versions of our heroes, mm -hmm. the Golden Age Flash, the Golden Age Green Lantern. Well, you know, beginning in 1963, every summer they would have those two teams cross over. Uh, it's also going to introduce a concept which is going to become core to the very concept of the DC Universe, and that's Parallel Earths. The Justice Society exists on an Earth, and in another dimension, the Justice League exists. So similar to that Magic Land story we saw, you know, basically a replicated Earth elsewhere in the, you know, what they're going to term the multiverse. Very, very important concept, and we're going to crack that nut next time out on our next episode. Sounds good. All right. Nutcracker. <laughs> and so once again, we want to thank you all for joining us. I hope you had a good time, and hope to see you again here on the Parliament of Rooks podcast. Hi, everybody. Still don't know what I was waiting for And my time was running wild A million dead end streets and Good evening. You're thought, <laughs> Good evening. <laughs> Try that. Yeah. Good evening. Yeah, no. Good evening. <laughs> so I turned myself to face me But I've never caught a glimpse Just gather my thoughts. I'm gonna gather my wine. Now the others must see I'm much too fast to take that test change it. Mark, I finished typing. What else is always on? Mark! Because it's always Mark with an exclamation point. Yeah. very, like, gasping. Mark, I finished typing that script sooner than I thought. I brought it. Mark, what's happened to your eyes? Stop it. No, it's just as she's saying. Hold on. I'd be like, Mark! Fantastic figure grasps the black diamond. Fantastic figure grasps the Fantastic figure grasps, grasps, grasps. I watch the ripples change the sides, but never leave the stream of warm and permanent sand. Uh, it's a story called Captive of the Cat Curse. I like cats. <laughs> and these children that you spit on and stay. Try to change their worlds. We can't. We can't. We can't. We can't. We can't. We can't. Gesturing to a suit of armor, Dr. Seven or Peaches. Or Peaches. It's when you get more Peaches. Gesturing to a suit of armor, Dr. Seven repeats the witch's chant. Can I have free peaches? <laughs> Stop. Strange fascination, fascinating. This is like the this is like in the movies where you're like, no, no, I'm good. Okay, 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 I'm good. The face I'm going I can't do it now. Mark! <laughs> mark, 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 mark! <laughs> now you sound like the thing.
once again, I want to thank you all for listening. I hope you had a good time and hope to see you again here on the Parliament of Rooks podcast. Bye, everybody. Together with me now. And so as always... Bye, everybody. (laughs) Stop. (laughs) You said with you. (laughs) If you have any questions, comments, corrections, or suggestions... You can email us at tporpodcast at gmail.com.